millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 262. Questions 9. I was going to follow the sack of Constantinople with an episode about the experience of enslavement during the fall of a city, but I got so many questions about the Fourth Crusade, I thought it would make more sense to dive right into those now, while the siege is fresh in your memories. There are many, many more questions to tackle in future episodes. Thank you all for the amazing response. So I think we need to address the big questions first. Was the collapse of the Roman Empire inevitable? Listener DN asks this, saying, even without the Fourth Crusade as a catalyst, it feels like the empire was collapsing on its own. Since Andronicus took power, there have been more and more rebellions with different parts of the empire declaring independence while listener B queries whether the Komnenoi had simply been holding back the tide of decline that began at Manzikert. And listener BN says, given the empire was almost ungovernable, as I titled episode 258, did the Latin occupation perversely end up extending the life of the empire? My broad answer to all these questions is no. No, I don't think the fall of the empire around the beginning of the 13th century was inevitable. I think the Fourth Crusade was a one-off event that could easily not have happened, and that had it not happened, the empire would have recovered. Before I elaborate, I should say that the biggest clump of questions which I received were basically asking about the almost ungovernable state of the empire. Why were the provinces in rebellion all the time? Why were mob bosses running the streets of Constantinople? Why had the government become so feeble? Why was the army in such a state? And so on. I will be addressing these questions across a series of episodes, so if you feel my answers today are lacking such details, don't worry. So yes, the Roman Empire was in the grip of a serious crisis. The Komnenos family had done a good job of getting everyone to accept their right to rule, but once they were gone, there was no one, seemingly, who could command the same level of respect. So provincial strongmen were refusing to cooperate with the government, which led to an endless string of wars and declining tax receipts. But none of these provincial rebels stood a chance of taking Constantinople. So it was just a matter of time before someone got a grip on things and began to restore order. We've seen the empire in this state before, both in 717 and, then again, when Alexius Komnenos took power. On both occasions, there were moments when it looked like the Roman government could only control its capital and little else. But Constantinople was such a vast metropolis 
that its gravitational pull would have reasserted itself eventually. An emperor would have emerged who could win the victories necessary to put a stop to the rot. Having made peace with Bulgaria and Serbia, this leader would have brought the provinces to heel and begun to reform the court. It might have taken 10 or 20 years and a lot of hard work and luck, but that seems the most likely outcome to me. It would only have taken a few years of peace for the tax receipts to pick up, and once the government had enough money, they could hire competent foreign soldiers to flatten their enemies. That's what Constantinople always did. That's why the sack was so devastating, because it robbed the Romans of the accumulated resources which allowed it to outlast its rivals. Let's explore this further. If we imagine that the Fourth Crusade never happened, or that it passed by towards Egypt, were there any other powers who could have done what they did? Could the Normans have returned and captured Constantinople? Could the Seljuks? What about the Italian maritime states or the Bulgarians? I don't think so. In a massive historical headline that we've had to overlook, the Norman Kingdom of Sicily has sort of fallen by this point. The long-standing goal of the Holy Roman Emperors to take control of southern Italy has finally come to pass. I won't go into detail, but basically the island is currently in a long struggle over who will rule it from now on, and its destiny will be westward-facing, being drawn into the politics of European courts, rather than searching for a Balkan Empire. Meanwhile, the Seljuks are heading eastwards. The civil wars launched after Kilij Arslan's death are now over. But instead of trying to take advantage of Constantinople's travails, the sultans of Iconium will see opportunities in central and eastern Anatolia to expand their rule. There's no hint that they would have attempted to move west, nor did they have the fleet to really attack Byzantium. The Italians also lacked the resources to impose their will directly. I think they would have called the shots for the next century at least, as in, the Romans would have been forced to grant Genoa, Pisa and Venice free trading rights, but it was extremely unlikely that those states would ever have worked together to capture Constantinople. Finally, the Bulgarians. And I think this is the key to listener BN's counterfactual, as in, would the Byzantine infighting have become so endemic that even without the Crusaders, a local rival would have conquered Constantinople eventually? I can sort of imagine a world in which a Bulgarian leader, or even perhaps the King of Hungary, might have attempted to seize the Byzantine throne amidst the chaos. But under such circumstances, I think two things would become possible. One is that such a conqueror would not sack Constantinople, because instead of seeing the city as a giant piggy bank, they would have viewed it as the glittering centre of their new realm. And two... I think a clearly foreign attempt to capture the city would have united the Romans in its defence, in a way that the Latins fighting on behalf of Alexius Angelos did not. Those Balkan powers also lack a navy. So in a way, I think an attack by a Balkan power might have brought to power the very emperor that we're looking for, one who could have united the Romans and begun the recovery. But we are now truly off in the weeds. I think that as long as Constantinople stood, it would remain powerful. 
Its strategic position on the crossroads from east to west and north to south would always bring people and wealth to its door. The Romans would have had to accept a subordinate position in the international order for some time, particularly if another crusade wanted to pass by. But I see no reason why the Romans couldn't have recovered. I can say that with some confidence because the forces of Nicaea will restore the empire, suggesting that the native strength of Byzantium was there to be rallied. Listener B asked whether the empire could ever have recovered to the level it had been under Basil II, or whether something had been permanently lost by this point, assuming, of course, that the Fourth Crusade didn't happen. I think something has definitely been lost. I don't think the Romans were likely to get Cilicia or Cyprus back for a long time, nor do I think they were likely to annex the Bulgarians or Serbians. I think this post-Andronicus collapse probably meant that for the next century, those states would be too strong to subdue. I also think the chance of expansion in Anatolia was gone, though the Mongol invasions might have changed that. So without the Fourth Crusade, I think a recovered Roman Empire would be smaller than before and more vulnerable, but would still be the richest and most powerful state amongst its direct neighbours. Beyond that, though, the possibilities are endless. If the Romans continue to thrive, then the Ottomans may never have thought to turn west and set their sights on expansion into Europe. In that sense, I think the Fourth Crusade is a unique event, one that drastically changes the course of history and definitely paves the road for the disappearance of the Roman Empire two and a half centuries later. So who was to blame for the sack of Constantinople? That's a key question on the minds of many listeners. Listener R.R. in particular asked a series of questions about how much we should blame particular individuals or regimes. But rather than go through all those, I will simply list the characters in order of the blame that I would assign them for the sack. Number one, Andronicus Komnenos. No question. Not only did he destroy Manuel's family, but he ruined his own. He discredited the whole Komnenian project so thoroughly that he made it almost impossible for the Angeloi to command respect across the empire. His massacre of the Latins was extremely provocative and was clearly weighing on the mind of Enrico Dandolo during the siege. The Doge knew what would happen if he installed an unpopular emperor and then sailed away. Number two, Enrico Dandolo. The Doge was the man who controlled the crusade. Without his fleet, the Latins were not going anywhere. If Dandolo didn't want to sack Constantinople, then it would have remained inviolate. I don't think he was ever in an easy position. I don't think he did it with malice. But he was the only man who could have negotiated a way out of the situation, and he chose to attack instead. Number three, Boniface of Montferrat. The original vision of the crusade was to essentially raise a French army and sail directly for Egypt. Once Boniface became its leader, the whole enterprise changed course. Boniface clearly saw Constantinople as the natural financier for the campaign. And though he may have had his eye on becoming King of Jerusalem, he was more than happy to swap that title for Emperor of the Greeks. We'll go into more detail on Boniface's ambitions when the narrative resumes. Number four, Alexius Angelos. I do have sympathy for young Alexius. 
He was trying to avenge his father's blinding, a horrible thing for a young person to witness. I doubt he ever imagined Constantinople would be sacked. But without his claim to the throne, it seems doubtful that the Latins would ever have committed themselves to an attack on Byzantium. They might still have parked outside and demanded cash, but they would have had no cause to risk their lives for. Number 5. Philip of Swabia Without a powerful patron, Alexius and Boniface wouldn't have had the launch pad they needed to turn the crusade towards Byzantium. Number 6. Alexius Angelos Komnenos I think a more vigorous defence of Constantinople could have done real damage to the Latins, but he bottled it. Number 7. Alexius V Ducas, as in Modsuflos. If you're going to provoke the Latins into attacking you, then you should have the decency to die trying to stop them. Number 8. Manuel Komnenos. It's hard to slam Manuel for showing mercy to Andronicus, but if he'd killed him, it would have been better for everyone. The more inexplicable decision was the mass arrest of Venetian merchants back in 1171. Without that decision, I think things might have played out very differently. The Venetians could have blocked the Norman sack of Thessaloniki, Andronicus may not have massacred Latin civilians when he took power, and Enrico Dandolo may not have felt he had to take the city in order to protect the Venetian colony on the Golden Horn. Beyond that, I can't really blame Isaac Angelos for the sack. He was a mediocre leader, but he did his best, and he can't have known that his son would bring back a huge fleet to try and rescue him. Nor do I think it's fair to blame the Alexius Komnenos, as listener A.H. suggests we might. I think it becomes very hard to pin fault on someone for something which happens 86 years after they die. Yes, the Komnenian kinship system broke down. Yes, he granted privileges to the Venetians. And yes, he launched the First Crusade. But all those decisions were made at a time of great crisis, and each paid off massively ensuring that Byzantium recovered and became a major power again. If the Fourth Crusade hadn't happened, I believe that a new Alexius figure would have risen and would have remade the state again in a new form. Several listeners brought up the massacre of the Latins, which accompanied Andronicus's seizure of Constantinople. And although it definitely played a part in the events of 1204, I don't think it was crucial. The Latins who sacked the city were happy to believe anti-Byzantine propaganda, but they were also happy to be their friends, so long as they got paid. Listener R.R. frames this in terms of keeping the Byzantine fleet stronger, as in, without the massacre, the Romans wouldn't have lost lots of naval expertise and let their fleet run down, but I don't think that the two are directly connected. The shrinking tax receipts from provincial rebellions were the key, to why there wasn't money for the fleet. A different listener asks whether the sack was karma for the massacre of the Latins. I mean, you could look at it that way, but Andronicus had been strung up in the Hippodrome and beaten to death. And in general, you'd think medieval states would operate on that basis, that the leader responsible for actions like that should pay the price, rather than the people he commanded to do it. Listener R.R.'s actual question was whether it was karma, or if I think it was totally wrong for the Fourth Crusaders to sack the city. 
questions of morality in these situations are so unbelievably murky. I mean, should they have been aiming to conquer Egypt in the name of Jesus Christ in the first place? Should they have agreed to attack Zara and Constantinople in service of debts to the Venetians? It's all such a mess. I, I certainly don't think that the men on the Fourth Crusade were doing something more egregious than lots of other armies in history. They believed that they were on a holy mission, doing God's work. Once you have a goal that is cosmic in significance and can affect the fate of your soul, then I think it becomes easy to justify almost anything. I certainly don't blame them for sacking Constantinople when they did. From their point of view, Alexius Angelos had been overthrown by a horrible man who'd broken sacred vows. I think they were pretty justified at that point to capture the city and collect the debts they were owed. It was just such a tragic farce that they were there in the first place. The story of the Fourth Crusade is such a fascinating moral maze. At every turn, men were asked to honour one promise while breaking another. We know that even the day before the final battle, some amongst the Latins were asking to be allowed to leave and simply go to Jerusalem. Listener A.H. asks how I think history would have changed if either Manuel had killed Andronicus or if Andronicus had never killed Alexius II, as in Manuel's son. I think some kind of conflict would have happened even if Manuel's son had lived, because Andronicus would still have promoted his own sons and favourites to the controlling heights of the state. Alexius II would have grown up like Basil II, surrounded by powerful figures trying to control him. Probably that story ends in bloodshed anyway. Um, if Andronicus was gone, I still see conflict, but perhaps a less disastrous outcome. Someone would have taken over the regency for Manuel's son, but it seems doubtful if anyone would have made such a hash of it as Andronicus did. In part because more distant relatives would have felt the need to keep a pure-blooded Komnenos around to justify their takeover, if you see what I mean. Whereas Andronicus being a pure-blood Komnenoi um, could sort of justify murdering Manuel's child. But, you know, it's still possible that civil war would have followed, you know, as men tried to fight over who should be at Alexius's side. Either way, Manuel's son faced a huge uphill struggle to control the legacy that his father left him. And when it comes to the Fourth Crusade, I think there's every chance that the Latins would still have wanted to extort money from the Byzantines to help pay for their campaign, you know, even if uh, Andronicus was still alive or Manuel's son was in charge. But if they didn't have an ousted prince to avenge, then I don't see them committing to capture Constantinople. Listener KP wonders about the differences between the Arab siege of 717 and the Crusader sack of 1204. In both cases, the political system was in chaos. You may remember that there were seven different emperors in the run-up to Maslama's attack. And yet, the Byzantines seemed united back then when the attack began, whereas here, morale was low and the response anemic. It's the context of the two sieges which makes a difference. As I mentioned in part one of the Fourth Crusade story, there's something comical about 1204. If it was a film, parts of it anyway, are like a black comedy. The Byzantines never really saw the sack coming. 
They kept viewing events through the lens of a civil war. And it wasn't until it was too late that someone said, hey, you know there's a foreign army camped just outside the walls. Whereas, if I made a film about the Arab siege, it would be like Independence Day. This gigantic alien threat, slowly moving closer and closer, aiming itself at the heart of Byzantine civilization, ready to obliterate it. There was no doubt in 717 about what would happen if the Arabs won. Everyone would be killed or enslaved. It's not hard under those circumstances to maintain morale and convince people to risk their lives to defend the city. It's also worth saying that the majority of soldiers in 717 were native Romans, whereas in 1204 large parts of the army were not. The idea that mercenary soldiers give up at the first sign of trouble just isn't true, but in this case the foreign troops guarding the walls did not have a huge incentive to die for New Rome. Nor did the aristocrats, who felt they might be targeted by the emperor if they were too successful. It really was a toxic combination, and with the empire's cash flow draining away, there wasn't a sense that fighting for the Romans would bring rich rewards in the future. Finally today, several listeners objected to my assessment of the sack of Constantinople, specifically my downplaying of the tragedy of the city's fall and the way I pushed back on the crime-against-humanity line you can find in so many corners of the internet. Listener WP articulated things nicely. I'm quite invested in Roman history, and am amazed at how an empire was able to maintain continuity for two millennia during some of the most politically unstable environments in history. To me, the fact that something this important to European history is finally losing its strength and relevance is at least a little worthy of some of the superlatives thrown at the Fourth Crusade. They then added, Is that fair? When analysing the collapse and legacy of states and empires in history, should we judge the event primarily with a moral argument, such as whether the state had a positive impact on history or their downfall was karmic, or a political argument, such as how much impact the state had and how much was lost with their collapse? If I wasn't clear, I obviously think the sack of Constantinople was a bad thing. I wish it hadn't happened. And yes, it is sad that a political entity which had survived for so long has hit a very low point. I didn't feel the need to dwell on that because it seemed so obvious. In a way, my attention shifted to the comic nature of it all because that was a new emotion for me. Having spent years, like most of you, viewing this as a great tragedy... As I said at the time, the whole thing also felt anticlimactic. It didn't feel like the fall of a great empire. It felt like a series of interlocking disasters culminating in a rather pathetic denouement. The Latins did sack the city, and obviously lots of people's lives were ruined. But that overwhelming sense of tragedy just wasn't there for me. The Byzantines failed to solve a series of problems, and their leaders kept running away. It's hard to describe something as a desperate tragedy when it's so farcical. If you keep abandoning your own city, what do you think will happen to it? I don't think the Romans deserved to have their capital sacked, but I think their leaders let us all down, and basically allowed the Latins to take the city. That's quite a different emotional context from the one I'd always understood. 
The story I'd heard was that the Fourth Crusade sacked a beautiful Christian city because they were greedy, corrupt, and vengeful. And that's not what I see here. I think many of the men on the Fourth Crusade were as much the victims of their leader's stupidity as the citizens of Constantinople were. As for the crime against humanity, some of you will know of the great historian Sir Stephen Runciman, who wrote extensively on Byzantium and the Crusades. In 1954 he wrote the line that there was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. That sense of Christians betraying other Christians and laying waste to something wonderful in an ignorant cause has left a powerful legacy. I put that phrase into Google, and it took me about three clicks to find an article mentioning Hiroshima in the same breath as 1204. That's what I felt a strong need to push back against. The sack of Constantinople was not Hiroshima. It can't even be compared to the sack of cities in its own century, let alone the horrors closer to our day. Constantinople was badly burnt, its treasures were stolen, and its people were heartbroken and miserable, and that's a tragedy, certainly. But there were no massacres and no attempt to erase Roman civilization. The Latins moved in and began to administer the empire. Byzantine men and women went back to work for this new regime. No one was banned from speaking Greek or worshipping in orthodox ways. I will be dedicating an episode to the real, harsh, horrific experience of being enslaved and losing your home in events like this, so I will give due reverence to the suffering, but I hope you can understand why I felt the need to push back. I also think that the tragedy of 1204 is always viewed in the context of 1453. It's clear to us that the reason the Ottomans were able to wipe out the empire is connected to the Crusader sack. But that hindsight is not entirely relevant to our step-by-step -step narrative analysis. In 1204, Roman civilization was very much alive. Lots of Roman people had not been conquered, and plans to reform the empire were underway. I think my perspective may also be different to many of you, because I no longer view the narrative from 1204 onwards as some depressing backwater. I view it as very exciting and interesting because I know nothing about it. I'm also desperate to find the time to learn more about Byzantium as a whole. I want to produce many more Byzantine stories exploring lots of different aspects of Roman life, so I don't feel that I'm saying goodbye to the Romans anytime soon. I think some listeners also objected to me pointing out that the Romans had sacked many a city, started many a fire, and looted many a palace over the centuries on the grounds that perhaps Constantinople was better or more significant than those places. Therefore, its loss is more tragic. Which brings us back to listener WP. When analysing the collapse and legacy of states and empires in history, should we judge the event primarily with a moral argument or a political argument? This might be one we need to re revisit another day, because my slightly boring answer is that I don't think we can do either because it's so subjective. I've adopted a tone of measured neutrality in imitation of Mike Duncan, because I really enjoyed his style. But this podcast is shamelessly pro-Roman. It tells every story from the Roman point of view, and sees the raping and enslaving of non-Romans as positive developments, whereas the reverse is sad and depressing. There's nothing objective about that. <laughs> 
So I don't feel comfortable making value judgments about different civilizations. I think we have a tendency in the modern West to look at things through the lens of progress. What did a particular civilization invent or accomplish that led towards the modern world? But that is a very modern Western idea. I would prefer to talk about the major role that Byzantium played in world history. Whether it was good or bad, I'll leave up to you. After this sack, the Romans will play a less significant role in events, but I'm choosing to enjoy the minutiae rather than dwell on what has been lost. Next time, more questions. The next batch will be more specifically about the details of the Fourth Crusade narrative. And remember that if you strongly disagree or strongly agree with things I've said in this episode, I will eventually hold some Zoom chats with patrons where you'll have the chance to follow up on your questions or to argue with me or to point out where I've gone wrong, um, which could be really fun or really awful, which I think is uh, even more incentive to (laughs) become a patron and be a part of it. Uh, More details um, after each episode. That'll probably be in about a month's time. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.